There was once a grown man who had a very silly habit of walking down the street to a sports bar nearby, sitting down with his friends, having a few drinks, and watching hockey. And what would happen is that every night, a fight would break out. Just like in a hockey game, watching a hockey game. And, and at the end of the night, he'd get all beat up and he would sort of shuffle home really late, making a big noise, banging doors and everything, wake his poor wife up and say, honey, will you clean me up? And she'd have to get out of bed and, and clean him up while he complained about the alcohol wipes and the peroxide and everything. And one day she just had it. She said, you got to grow up sometime. You're, you're a grown man. You go and you get in fights. You're doing all this. I'm done. I'm not going to take care of you anymore when you do this. Tonight, if you're going to go down there and watch hockey, you better be quiet when you get home, and you better be in decent shape and come and just lie down in bed. He said, okay, no problem. I'm, I'm done with that. I put that behind me. So that night, the, the game was, it was a real high-scoring hockey game. It was like 2-2 two to two or something, and, and a big fight broke out. And this guy got his bell rung really bad to the point where he kind of forgot who he was for a minute. And then he, he staggered home. But he, he remembered, I got to be quiet. So very quietly, he walked in. He took his shoes off like Dagwood in the old comics and like tiptoed up the stairs. Went in the bathroom, cleaned himself all up, got all of his wounds tended to. He's chuckling as he lies down quietly in bed. In the morning, he hears his wife say, you did it again, you bonehead. What is the matter with you? So what are you talking about? No, I didn't. I wasn't fighting. I was, I was just... And she said, if you weren't out fighting, who put Band-Aids all over the bathroom mirror? I don't know. Later, will you find it funny? You'll be driving down the road. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Stories like that make me think of when you're a child. And you do something you knew you shouldn't, and you immediately panic and say, how do I cover this up? And, and you don't think things through well, and your big cover-up is always easily uncovered, and you wind up in great trouble. I remember there was a cookie jar. Actually, my parents still have this cookie jar. It's a glass cookie jar. And I, I, I would do drills on that thing, trying to figure out how to get the top off and back on without making that clink, clink, clink noise. And I was really good at getting it off, but back on was a problem. I remember one day I took the top off. My mom was in the other room reading. I had a no-bake cookie, and then I put a towel down and put the top on top of that. And then I walked away, forgot about it. Why? I don't know. Not thinking straight. And that is foolish. It's stupid. It's juvenile. But you know what? It's not any dumber than what this guy Achan does here in this text in Joshua chapter 7. This guy who thought that he could hide his sins, bury them, and hide them not only from his fellow Israelites, but from the all-knowing, all-seeing, omniscient God of heaven. Of course, the backstory of this, the chapter before, is we're just coming off the beginning of the conquest of the Holy Land and the Battle of Jericho. You'll remember they were 40 years in the desert, the people of Israel, and just now they've crossed over the, the Jordan River and the first check on their checklist for taking this promised land from the people who dwell there is a town called Jericho. Actually, a rather large walled city, and the people there are giant, we're like grasshoppers, etc., etc. God says, trust me, I will show you how to do it. And he has them walk around the city. Go around it. Go around it seven times on the last day. Blow trumpets. And miraculously, God causes these mighty walls to come tumbling down. You know the story. You've seen the VeggieTales cartoon. VeggieTales 
tastefully pans away before the actual battle begins. Although I probably would pay green money to see Bob the Tomato squishing those French peas. But yeah, there was a big battle and there was great destruction because God had said this city of Jericho is to be devoted to me. Everything in it devoted to me for destruction. It is so wicked. It is so full of idolatry and things that are an abomination to me that it should be completely destroyed. And it was part of this concept we find in the the conquest called the harem, which means devoted things. That's how the ESV translated it. Then the King James translates it, the ban. This thing called the ban. It's, It's when you go into a city and nobody is to take any spoil, any plunder. No one is, you're not, you see something you want, you can't take it, you, you burn it, you put it in a big pile and burn it, and it goes up the smoke to heaven like a burnt offering to the Lord. In fact, he was so serious about this particular city of Jericho that in chapter 6, he says, cursed is anyone who rebuilds it. It will be a curse on their whole family if they lay the foundation or make gates for this city and begin to rebuild it. And 500 years later, under King Ahab, as kind of a yardstick of how wicked the people have become, we're told that a man does rebuild it, Hiel, and that he does have this curse come upon it. 500 years, it didn't expire. That's how strongly God feels here. Destroy it, burn everything, and don't rebuild it. This is our God. People love it when I preach on things like gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and come and give me your troubles, etc., etc. And that's our God too. And there is no conflict here. God is holy. God is merciful. God is righteous and just. God is loving and full of grace. And if we didn't have both his holiness and his love and mercy, the cross wouldn't be the cross. You see both of them equally there. This is our God indeed. Well, the people seemed to do what he told them to do. The walls came down. They destroyed the city. They burned everything that they found. And then they look at their conquest checklist and say, all right, one down. That was a hard one, too. This is like that tackle the first hardest thing, first of the day, eat the biggest frog, whatever. And so they're, they're like, what's next? Oh, an easy one. Next is a little city called I, A-I. Some people pronounce it A-I. It's not pronounced that way. It's I. So they go to I and they look at it and, and, and they say, this is going to be nothing. Joshua, as was their custom, sends some spies, go over there, spy it out, tell me what it's going to be like. And, and you know, they go and they look. These are the, probably the same spies who went and were hid in Rahab's house and gave a good report. They said the people there are afraid. Everyone's hearts are melting like wax because they hear of the mighty deeds that our God has done in Egypt. And now they are they're so scared. And these guys now go and look at I and the, the difference is they become cocky because they've bought into their own press. They've bought in that old song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. We did this. Now... Read the text. Jehovah fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. But they think this is going to be easy peasy. Now, it's not a huge city. It doesn't have giants there that make people look like grasshoppers. But it is strategically located up on a hill on the road between Bethel and Gilgal. If you're going to take the promised land, you have to take this city and you have to take it early. And so this is the decision. The report comes back. They say, there's going to be no problem. Don't bother everybody. Don't say we're going to bring the whole army. We don't have to bother them. Easy peasy. It's so simple, right? Two, 3,000 guys 
go over there, bing, bang, boom, forget about it. I don't know why they're Italian all of a sudden, but yeah, go, go get this city, and then we move on. Joshua doesn't consult the Lord. He doesn't even seem to go to the elders or to any kind of counselors. He just says, okay, 3,000 men head to Ai. And they are cocky as well. They don't have some plan. They don't have a, a decision about how they're going to take on this siege or what they're going to do in the battle. They just say, walk up the hill to the front door, knock on it, say, we're the Israelites. We've got this conquest going on. You've probably heard of us. Your hearts have probably turned to wax. And we're here to destroy your city. But then they met something they were not counting on. Organized resistance. It's amazing the things that a walled city can do to repel an attack when their walls still exist. And this is the first time they've had to deal with a walled city where the walls still exist. And so they look down from the, the, the walls. They see there's 3,000 guys there, and they start pulling out their archers, their, their bows and arrows. They start pouring boiling oil on them. They start doing all the things that you do when someone attacks your city. Israel begins to panic. They turn tail and they run right down the hill. And as they run away, the attack continues. The doors open and the people of Ai, the, the fighting men, come running out after them, chasing them away, killing them as they go. And, and, and they run right back to Joshua and they say, what happened? We were supposed to be invincible. Now our hearts have melted and become like water, not theirs. What's going to happen now when everyone around us hears about this? We just got spanked by I. Come on. We, we, we're, we're in trouble now. That's embarrassing. Everyone's going to surround us, and they are going to snuff us out and erase us from the face of the earth. Why did this happen? Joshua says, I don't know, but I will find out. And he takes the elders of Israel. They go before the ark. And here's the thing about Joshua. He's new at this. Moses has recently died, but he's been studying under Moses. Moses was the ultimate God negotiator. He knew how to talk to him. He knew that when God got angry at the sins of the people or their hard-heartedness or their grumbling or their whoring around with other gods, that he would say things like, I am going to wipe them out and start over just with you. You and me, Moses. And Moses would say the same stuff. He would say, remember your covenant with Israel. He would say, think about your great name. If these people die out here in the wilderness, no one's going to think that you killed them by, as a punishment. They're going to think that you couldn't keep your people alive. And that will hurt your reputation. And it will actually drag your holy name into the mud. And by way of revealing himself, God would allow Moses to talk him into these things. So Joshua, who always went up on the mountain with Moses, undoubtedly overhearing a lot of this stuff, or standing outside the tent of meeting waiting for Moses, undoubtedly overhearing a lot of this stuff, says and does all the right things. Okay, so he, he goes to God, he gets on his face, which is a, a sign of humility and submission. He tears his garments and puts dust on his head, which is a sign of, of mourning and repentance. And they wait and wait there before the Lord, before they speak. And when he speaks, he starts saying the Moses stuff. Remember your covenant. What about your great name? They're going to come and wipe us out. You got to help us here, God. And God says, what are you doing? Stand up. This is not where you need to be. There's a problem you need to deal with. There is buried sin in your camp. Part of the harem, the, the devoted things have not been burned up and devoted to me by destruction, but are in someone's possession in your midst. And so now you are not holy unto the Lord. So here's what we're going to do. 
This is not a one-time thing. I won't be in your presence until you find this stuff and destroy it, so I will help you. Tomorrow, you assemble all the people. Imagine the undertaking that would be. Assembling them all by tribes. And then the high priest using the, the ephod will choose one tribe and bring them forward. This is what happens. They bring Judah forward. And then from Judah, that tribe, we go by clan and bring one clan forward. And then in that clan, we bring one family forward. In that family, we bring one person forward. And we come down to this one guy named Achan. And Joshua says, the jig's up. God has revealed to us, you did this. And he says, you're right, I did. When we were in the midst of the battle, I came upon some things. A Babylonian garment that was beautiful, some gold, some silver. I took them. They're even now buried in my tent. And you can go and find them there. Joshua sends guys. They come back with exactly what he described. And then Joshua says, well, you have troubled Israel. Today, God will trouble you. You have kept some of the devoted things, and now you will be devoted to God by destruction. You're part of the harem. And they bring him down to the valley of Achor, which means trouble, and there the people stone him to death. And not just him, but his adult children and all of his possessions, even his tents, all of his stuff, and they burn it all with fire, and then they cover it all over, bury it in rocks, and then stack up rocks into an enormous monument to the holiness of God and the wrath that God has against sin, particularly sin that is buried in the midst of his people. And then God says, okay, now that that's taken care of, we can get back on track with this conquest. Chapter 8, the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear, do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and rise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Paraphrasing, God says, forget your old plan because it's garbage. This is what we're going to do. Not 3,000 people gather together the fighting men. And I actually have a plan for you. Not just knock on the front door and say, we're here to kill you. And so this is what they do. They, they go to Ai, and Joshua breaks them up into groups. And he's got uh, 5,000 people there to cut off any reinforcements from Bethel, who might come down the road. And then he's got another group in reserve as an ambush. And then he's got the main force that once again goes right up the hill, up to the front door like before, and makes it look like they're really dumb and repeating the same mistake. They've got more guys but they're still doing the same stupid thing. They go up to the front door, and as soon as resistance comes, just like last time, they turn around and they run away. And just like last time, the doors of the city open and out pour the armies of Ai. And they come running down, and this time they don't just chase them for a minute. They go, this is getting annoying. Let's completely deal with this problem once and for all. And they chase them and chase them and chase them, leaving their city wide open and unprotected. That's when Joshua gives the signal, which is pointing with his javelin, and all these people who've been waiting, thousands of men who've been waiting in ambush, pour into the city, take the city, light it on fire, and that is the signal in turn for those who were running away to stop, spin, stand their ground, and begin to fight. Imagine this from the point of view of one of the men of Ai. You're running, you're running, you're running, like, oh, we got these guys again. Suddenly they stop, and you go, wait a minute, is that smoke I smell? City's on fire. That can't be good. And now they are trapped. They have been trapped by God's military plan and the might of Israel. And they are defeated. And the conquest can go on. And God's plan for his people can continue to unfold. And the rest of the Old Testament can happen. But it almost didn't because of one guy named Achan 
and his stupid thought that he could hide his sins, not just from his fellow Israelites, but from the God of the universe. Now, there are a lot of times that this guy's name is brought up as a bad example, a really bad example, usually an extreme example, like Benedict Arnold. We would bring up Benedict Arnold. Don't be like a Benedict Arnold, some big traitor. They say, don't be like Aiken, this foolish nonsense. But I suggest he's not an extreme example at all. That we all do this sometimes. We sin, we bury it, we keep it in our tent. And the longer we keep it there, the harder it is to dig it back up. And the easier it is to bury more and bury more and bury more. So I want to talk about buried sin for the remainder of our time today. And I want to tell you four things about buried sin that I think are helpful for all of us. And a good reminder if there's something that you already know. First of all, buried sin is never planned. And you might say, never, come on, sometimes. Sometimes someone says, I'm going to rob a bank, and they plan it meticulously, and they steal stuff, and then they have to hide it somewhere or bury it. Or somebody says, I'm going to kill somebody, and then I'm going to put their body here. Okay, but I'm talking about believers. I'm talking about believers who follow God, our God, like Achan, like you, like me. 999 out of 1,000 times, buried sin was not planned, or we wouldn't have wound up burying it. That's a panic move. It's a desperate move. We see the way that Achan describes this once he is exposed is so telling. There are steps to it. He says, first, I saw these things. Saw this Babylonian garment, which would have been gorgeous, by the way. I've seen some of this stuff uh, even, even uh, thousands of years later. It's still beautiful. Have you ever seen like Native American garments that have really colorful beads that, that make like an image and, and they're just breathtaking? Something like that. It would be more beautiful than even what they'd seen in Egypt. He saw it just lying there. It's not going to belong to anybody by the end of the night. And then he sees a wedge of gold and some silver coins. He sees it. It's okay to see it. He had to see it. He's in the middle of doing a job that requires him to look. But then, step two, he coveted it. Which means he said, I want that. I really want that. Step three, then, he took it. He probably took the gold and the silver and put them inside the garment, rolled it all up, and just stuck it right in his tunic. Easy. But once he'd taken it, he had no choice but to bury it. And that was step four, burying his sin. Right there where he sleeps and eats in his own tent. I saw it. I coveted it. I took it. I buried it. It wasn't planned out. And it was a foolish thing to do. Obviously, he knows that. This reminds me a bit of a story from years ago about this guy with a pet lion. And not like that weirdo on Netflix who has like a private zoo in Oklahoma, but this, this guy had a pet lion in his studio apartment in New York. And I remember hearing the story in the news, on the radio, reading about it in print. There wasn't a lot going on back then, I guess. And, and people were very curious about how it happened. It turns out he somehow procured a little lion cub, which I'm sure is in and of itself a very interesting story. And he would feed it with a bottle. You know, lion cubs are insanely cute. They got the giant paws. They're always tripping and stuff. And, and he had this thing. He petted it. It was his little pet. And every night, he would bring it into his bathroom, and he'd put out a towel, and he'd sit there, and it would sleep there. In the morning, he'd let it out of the bathroom. Everything was going great. Until one day, as tends to be the case, he realized this thing was growing, and growing was no longer a cub, but kind of an adolescent lion, and then an even bigger lion. 
And one night, he went to lead this lion into the little bathroom in his apartment, and the lion had an epiphany. I'm a lion. I got, like, claws. I got fangs. This guy, meanwhile, just looks very chewy, kind of delicious. And no, I don't think I'll be going into the bathroom to sleep tonight. He can go there. And the man and the lion had a very brief battle of wills, which the lion won handily. And at the end of the day, the guy somehow survived, but not by much. And instead of doing what most of us would do and changing his name and moving to Alaska or something, he, he claimed his 15 minutes of fame. And he made all the rounds. And he, I heard him being interviewed on a radio show. And the, the interviewer said, I'm just going to cut to the chase and say it. You don't seem stupid. You seem like a smart enough guy. Why would you think that you could keep a lion in your apartment and it wouldn't blow up in your face. And he said, I know, I see it now. I, and I understand how anyone looking at it from the outside would think that's so dumb, but you got to see it from my point of view. It was my little, my little lion cub. I fed it with a bottle. It was so cute. I never thought it would turn on me. I always thought it would be there for a snuggle with me every night. And it would just stay the same. It's a desperate move then when you recognize that it has grown too big to hide. You know, this, this kind of activity and this kind of tendency goes all the way back to the first recorded sin in all of Scripture in Genesis 3. Right? The same four steps. Eve is there by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one tree they are not to eat of. She sees the fruit. That's okay. You can see it. The tempter says, looks good. Looks good for food, looks, looks delicious, it won't really kill you. Don't worry about that stuff. God's just, he's just trying to mess with you. She sees that it is good for food and hears that it is very delicious and covets it. Then she takes it, she gives some to her husband, he's like, okay, and he eats it as well. And then what? Well, we've sinned now. We've got to hide the evidence. We've got to bury the shame. And they do it, Adam has this really brilliant idea. He's like, I know of some bushes. Probably God doesn't know about these bushes, and they go hide there. Crazy, God goes right to the bushes, and he says, did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat from? And they say, yeah, yeah well, the serpent, oh, the woman you put here. Told me. And ultimately, it blows up immediately in their face. Well, at least they learned a lesson and undoubtedly taught it to their kids, or not. One generation later, Cain and Abel, the first two born sons of Adam and Eve, Cain begins to hate his brother. That also can be something that looks good. And he begins to think about some kind of vengeance. I want to I teach this guy a lesson. And in a fit of rage, he says, hey, come out here. I want to show you something. Takes a rock, bashes his head in, and then what? Hides the body. you got to bury the evidence. God comes to him and says, have you seen your brother? Where's your brother? And he, ends, he, he utters those, those famous words or those infamous words. Am I my brother's keeper? I don't know where he is. And God says, his blood is crying out to me from the earth. You can't hide things from me. It wasn't planned. It's never planned. It is an absolute desperate move. Over the last 20 plus years, I've had many people come to me and say, can, can you give me some counsel? Can you pray for me? Can you help me? I've, I've, I've begun to fill my heart with sin, secret sin, and people don't know about it. And it's beginning to kind of overwhelm me and overtake me. And never once has any one of them told me it was part of this grand plan that I had, this design to ruin my life. I sat down in my vision board and I said, if only I, I could get addicted to pornography. 
I could destroy my marriage. Or if I could get filled with anger, I could do it. Or, or if I could think one spiteful, rotten thought about my boss every day and then start doing it hourly. Before long, I'd be so full of, of spite and anger and hatred and bitterness that I wouldn't even want to pray anymore. I figured it would take three years. I got it done in two. It was great. It was a wonderful plan. Well-executed plan. No, it's not planned. And yet, this desperate move is, is very much deadly. So that's the first thing. Buried sin is never planned. Second thing, buried sin destroys relationships. Particularly destroys our relationship with our Creator. You see this happening right away in the story of Achan. I mean, look how far-reaching it is. Not even Joshua, righteous Joshua, can come before him. Again, saying all the right things, all the Moses-y things. And he says to him, why are you on your face? Stand up. Go sanctify the people. We can't do this right now. We can't have this conversation. Think of Isaiah 59 too. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. They have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. Your sins have gotten in the middle of this relationship. God tells Joshua, search out the sin, dig it up, and get rid of it. And look at how completely they eradicate it. They don't say, okay, we got the garment, we got the gold, we got the silver, and then take 100 steps out beyond the camp, dump it down, kick a little dirt on it. All right, there, it's not in the camp anymore. We should be good. No, no, no. Stoned, burned, and buried, baby. This is a very Old Testament way to deal with things. And I would suggest that in dealing with the sin in our hearts and our own buried sin, an Old Testament approach is good. How violently and completely can I dig it up and do away with it? And then the relationship, by the way, is restored. And this is an example. It doesn't sound like it at first, perhaps, but it's an example of God's grace. This is not they messed up and then they made it right. No, no, no. This covenant has blessings and curses. They've broken the covenant. That means that's it for the blessings. Here come the curses. And yet, he says, no, let's do this again. Let's continue this promise. He's going to happen again and again and again and again, of course. Originally, the promises to Abraham could be put down into three categories. There's land, there's descendants, and there's relationship of blessing. Well, now we've got Lots of descendants, that's taken care of. We're getting to the land, but it all hinges on the relationship of blessing that Israel has with this God. And without it, the other two things don't mean anything. This is what all the Old Testament sacrifices were about. This is what they were there for. To keep that relationship open. To keep things going there, back and forth, so that we could have a relationship, not just a relationship, but a relationship of blessing. I remember when I was a kid, everyone would talk about what you need is a personal relationship with Jesus. Everyone's already got a personal relationship with Jesus. It doesn't get more personal than judge and condemned. What you need is a relationship of blessing. Well, in the Old Covenant, when you look at the sacrifices, these things aren't done to pay for the sins of the people so that they'll go to heaven and not hell. That's not, you know, someone who's saved in the Old Covenant is saved just like you and I, by grace, through faith. We believe in the Messiah who's already come and died and rose again. They believed in the Messiah who was to come. Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. No, the sac sacrifices were there for the unintentional sin, 
or the breaking of the ceremonial laws, the cleanliness laws, the food laws, all of these things that were a picture of what Messiah would do. When they broke them, they, they then got something in between them and God and the sacrifices were there to do away with that, to keep the lines of communication open and the relationship, a relationship of blessing. And this is what so many people, I think, who are believers begin to experience when they bury sin and don't confess it regularly. Or when they, they have all sorts of sin that they confess. They say, Lord, yeah, you know, I did this, 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 my thoughts, my words, my deeds. Lord, forgive me. But they know under the sin that even when they're on their knees, they're on top of buried sin that they have no intention of digging up. What they've lost then is that relationship. There is something between them and God. And it hides his face from them. I think of David. David went through, by the way, the very same process as Achan multiple times. Obviously, the most obvious would be the big, big sin with Bathsheba. You can go through that story and follow the same grid Achan followed. What, what happened? He should have been up fighting with his men, just like Achan should have been out fighting with the men, not here looking around, eyes wandering. Instead, he goes up on the palace of his or the roof of his palace, rather. I've, I've been there, right where he stood, pretty much. Looked down, and there is excavation happening. It's so cool, of the homes of the mighty men, including Uriah, and his name is there. It's so cool. We're going, sometime. And, and he looked down, and there is Uriah, his champion, his friend, his wife, Bathsheba, bathing. He sees her. Can't help it. No harm in that. No sin in that. He sees her, but then he sees that she's beautiful. And then he sees that she's very beautiful. And we see that he's moved from he sees to he's coveting. This is the same thing that happened with, with Achan. He, he sees, he says, I want that. And because he's king and because of the ancient Near East and the culture and all the stuff wrapped up in that, he is able to say, bring that woman to me. And then he uh, commits adultery with her and, and he impregnates her. And now he says, oh, I've got to cover this up. I've got to bury the sin. Now he's, uh, he's sinned against Bathsheba horribly. He's sinned against Uriah, his friend, and more than anything, he's sinned against his God. But instead of being repenting and, and penitent and, and, and brokenhearted, he says, i got to fix this. How do I bury it so that it's just out of sight? It's gone. Nobody sees it. You may know the story. Maybe you don't. He, he actually calls Uriah back to give a report on the fighting. And Uriah tells him how it's going. He says, good job. You know what? As a reward, why don't you go home and sleep with your wife? He'll think the kid is his no problem. Uriah is such an honorable man. He won't go in and lay with his wife. He lays outside the door of his house. He says, my men are out there lying on the ground with the enemy surrounding them. How could I possibly go lie in my own warm bed? Class act. And so David says, oh, okay, well, I've got some orders to send back with you. And he writes orders, death orders for Uriah, essentially, rolls them up, seals them, and hands them to this guy and says, give this to the commander. Admiral, when you get over there, and, and that will deal and it says, what you're to do is put Uriah the Hittite in the front of the army, go forward, advance, and then everyone else pull back and let him be killed. And that's what happens in trying to bury his sin. He commits more and more and more sin. And that's what seems to happen. In fact, here you even have reference to you have stolen and you have lied. You stole, that's the initial sin, and you stole from God, and then you lied by covering it up. Sin compounding sin. And then, of course, David keeps it buried poorly until Nathaniel the prophet comes and digs it up and says, look at this. Look what you've become. Look what you are doing to Israel. 
Look what you have done to this poor woman. Look what you have done. And then it breaks his heart. And he begins to confess. And of course, he writes this psalm, Psalm 51, which is a beautiful picture of penitence and and having a broken and contrite heart and coming before God saying, I am not worthy in any way of your love. He says things like, cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Restore an upright spirit to me. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. But notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, restore unto me my salvation because I've lost it. No, David's not an Arminian. He says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. The relationship is shot right now, God. My sins are between you and me so that you do not hear me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Give me the heart that I need. Forgive me of my sins. Dig up my garbage and make me new. And that is what needs to happen for those of us who find ourselves from time to time, and I think it is all of us, with buried sin in our hearts, where day after day, or sometimes even week or month after month, we do not confess it, but keep it under the surface. Thirdly, buried sin affects others. It happened with David, certainly, but it happens with Achan as well. Just look, he doesn't go down into that valley alone. And it's not guilt by association. Oh, we don't like you because you're this guy's offspring. You're probably bad news. No, it says in the law, clearly, do not put to death the children for the sins of the father. So they were somehow implicated in this. You live in a tent together, it makes sense. They, they probably helped bury it. They knew about it and they said nothing. Whatever the case, they, they were expecting to inherit it or their job was to sell it when they landed in Canaan and, and they were out of the eye of all the other people. Somehow they got mixed up in it. And that makes sense because it says in the scriptures that like leaven through a lump of dough, sin can move through the hole very quickly. That happens within families. It happens even within nations. What, what does he say? What does he say to Joshua? One guy sinned, therefore I will not be with you. No, he says the children of Israel have sinned against me. Collectively, you've broken the covenant. The children of Israel have sinned. And we say, well, that's back then. Now everybody's kind of their own little unit. Mm. We've tried to do that because our culture is very isolated and private. But read the scriptures. There's a letter to the church in Laodicea. You're lukewarm. There's a letter to a church. You've lost your first love. There's this sense of a body. And so our sins affect others. And they don't just affect others who are in our families. They don't just affect others who are in our churches. They affect everybody that we get in contact with. That's how leaven works. You see it very clearly, I think, with the rash of fallen pastors and ministers in churches lately. Extramarital affairs, sexual sin, financial impropriety, just being a huge jerk and domineering and treating people like garbage. And churches fall and pastors fall. And what happens? You have all these people telling their story of, well, if that's what this Jesus thing is about, I don't need it. Now that person's sin has spread out like a dirty bomb exploding, spreading with it all this suffering, all this pain. And that doesn't just happen with famous pastors. It can happen on a micro level inside your household or your workplace or your neighborhood. Buried sin affects others. Fourthly and finally, buried sin could cost you your life. I know that sounds like sermonic clickbait, but stay with me. Think first of all about Achan, right? He died because of his sin. 
Without that sin, who knows how long he could have gone on to live and had a wonderful life and uh, passed on the name of uh, Carmi and Zabdi and Zerah and all these things, the other children, and, and he could have been remembered and celebrated by his descendants rather than being this monument to disobedience and wickedness. But you say, hold on, that's Old Testament. I mean, good grief. Your odds of being stoned to death, burned and buried in the Old Testament are like one in three or something. So what about something a little later, the New Testament? All right, how about the book of Acts? Remember Ananias and Sapphira? Ananias and Sapphira, they, they get caught up in this whole thing of a lot of people in the early church are selling extra land that they have, and then they will take all the money from the sale of those fields, bring it to the apostles' feet, and say, use this to feed the poor and help the church. And they think, they look at that, and they see it, and they covet it. They covet being celebrated and lifted up in the community and thought of as high rollers and, and philanthropists, but they don't really want to do it, so they take it. They sell some fields, they take a small portion of the money, and they bring it to the apostles' feet and say, this is all of it. He says, this is all of it? Yeah, this is it. This is all we got. And he says, those fields were yours to keep or sell or do whatever you wanted. Why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? These men over here, they're going to drag you out because you're going to be dead in a second. She falls over dead. They pull her out. He comes in, sees the wife, falls over dead. The whole thing is a real mess. And you say, but that's the book of Acts. That's not now. Weird things happen all the time in the book of Acts. You know, worms eating a king before he dies. You got Paul getting bit by a snake and he's fine. What about in the book of 1 Corinthians? When we're, we're hearing a instruction about the Lord's table and taking the Lord's supper. And he starts talking about taking it in an unworthy manner. There are particular sins he has in view there, but it's clear that to take the Lord's supper in an unworthy manner means to do it with unconfessed sin. Sin buried in your heart. Where you've buried it, you've buried it in your tent, and then you take God and drag his presence into your tent with it. You try to, or maybe a better picture is, is drag your burden and your garbage and your sin and your filth into his presence in heaven rather than giving it to Christ to be taken off your shoulders. This is the whole picture of God as a consuming fire from the Old Testament. Sin cannot be in his presence. And he says to those in Corinth, because of this, Many of you have grown ill, and some of you have fallen asleep. And that doesn't mean like how one of you already fell asleep this morning. You say, died. It's a euphemism. People think I'm nuts when I start talking like this, but I don't care. If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And so, if you have buried sin in your heart, it may cost you your life. I would say perhaps even literally. If you bring it to the, to the Lord's table, that's a dangerous move. If you then don't bring it to the Lord's table and you don't have communion and you disengage from the people of God, well, then your sin has gotten between you and him's and he has hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. And that's a kind of spiritual death. Either way, you're dead. All right, the closing hymn is... 393, breathe on me. I'm kidding. No, 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 no. Anybody who starts telling you bad news and then stops, that's not a gospel preacher. Give him a wedgie and never go back, okay? Gospel means good news. Good news of great joy. That's what we have in Jesus. There's always something more. There's always good news that comes. Even in this news of death, 
and this really bleak message and this picture of this guy who just got caught up in the moment and paid with his life. And the good news we see in 1 John 1, 8 and 9. You probably know it by heart if you've been a Christian very long. If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. But if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. The good news is you can dig up the buried sin and you can go to him and say, here it is. And he won't say, you have troubled me today and I will trouble you down to the valley of Achor. No, with him, we can say, here it is. And he will say, my son Jesus bled and died for that sin. And I take it from you. And I will cast it as far as the east is from the west. But you know, sometimes it takes some real digging. If it's been there a long time, Sometimes it's like in the, a, a cheesy straight-to-DVD movie, right, when, when the guy next door happens to be a secret super spy, and it all starts happening, and he goes down in the basement, and he's got a, a sledgehammer, and he's got to smash open the floor and pull out the duffel bags of guns, undoubtedly going, why did I bury it under cement? This was stupid. But sometimes you have to do that. You've got to get the earth-moving equipment in. Sometimes it takes the Holy Spirit to break through that ground. In fact, in the, in the parable of the four soils, the Spirit's got to till the ground up and break it all apart before any of the work of God can happen. So coming to him and saying, Lord, I need you to break up the ground before I can even dig up the sin to give it to you is a prayer that he will answer. Let me close with a story about a guy named Don Wyman, who in 1993, while he was living in Puxatoni, Pennsylvania, Famous for groundhogs, but apparently other stuff also happens there. Grim stuff, you'll see. He worked for a mining company, clearing land. He was like a tough guy. He drove around in a truck, had a chainsaw on the back, did it all solo. Knew it was kind of silly, but thought he was real smart, real skilled, real experienced at this stuff. And one day he was out cutting down trees, and he did one just wrong, and it fell just wrong toward him, and he dove out of the way, and it crushed his leg. Boom, right at the knee, just crushed it, and he began to bleed profusely. And so he started shouting for help, and he screamed until his voice was hoarse, and then he remembered how far he had driven out with his truck before he got out and started cutting down trees, and how a mining company owned all of this, and no one was supposed to be on it, and probably no one was going to hear him. So he's, sorry, I got to think, 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 think. So he starts up his chainsaw. We're not to the grim part yet. He tries to dig out from underneath. With the chainsaw, just, you know, I'm going to cut the, the earth out from beneath me. Immediately the chain breaks, and that's it. So he starts shouting again. Maybe someone's nearby. Maybe someone's driving on a road I don't know about something. And, and within a little while, he thinks, I don't have much time left. I am really bleeding. So he, he takes the starter cord from the chainsaw, makes a tourniquet using a wrench to twist it, twist it, twist it. I've been part of these things where you do a tourniquet properly and it leaves, they call it the tourniquet tattoo. You've got to do it so hard that it hurts really, really, really bad. And he does it until he, he knows he's shut off the blood. And then he takes out a pocket knife. Somehow finds the constitution and will in him to cut through skin and muscle and, and veins and ligaments and even bone and severs his own leg. Then he drags himself until he gets to a bulldozer, drives that to his truck, drives that a mile and a half to a farmer's house, who then calls the police, and the man is yet alive today. Your leg is precious. My leg is precious to me. 
the difficulty of getting a prosthetic and learning how to use it and all that would go along with it. It would, be, it would be very, very, very difficult to decide to lose my leg, and yet it is worth it to save your life. But 10 years after that, that guy was hiking, and they made that movie, 127 Hours. Similar thing happened. His hand got pinned, and he was hanging there and hanging there, and he realized he had to, to take a multi-tool and, and cut his hand off to save his life. Jesus taught a similar thing. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, throw it away. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off, lose it. Better to have one eye or one hand than to enter into hell with both of them. Recognizing that sin can seem precious to you and you've got to be willing to do the extreme, to go over the top, stone burned and buried, not just, oh, maybe we'll put it over here for now. I'll bury it a little deeper this time. And here's the question, what good was this stuff doing Aiken anyway? Yeah, it's a snazzy jacket. He can't wear it. He can't spend the gold. People will wonder where he got it. It's obviously not from where we came from. It was just, it was, it was there giving him no satisfaction. Buried sin does nothing for us but get in the way of our relationship with God, saddle us with shame and steal days, weeks, months, years from our lives while we sit there in our, in our tents knowing what is under the surface, wanting to be rid of it, and for some reason not giving it to our Lord. Remember the instructions Joshua gives Achan. He says to him, give glory to God and praise to him and tell us what you did. To confess his sins was to praise God and glorify him. And that seems strange when they killed the guy afterward for it. Almost any commentary I've ever seen on this passage, the question comes up, was this guy saved? Will we see him in eternity? Probably. The covenant that was an earthly covenant said he's got to be put to death, but he confessed and repented and gave glory and praise and acknowledged this God. Well, you and I can confess and repent of our sins and we need not be put to death, taken down into a valley and stoned and have a monument to our own failure erected over our own body. Rather, Jesus himself went not into a valley, but up onto a hill, Calvary, and there became a monument to the power of God to forgive our sins, the love of God, which is greater than all of our sins. His empty tomb is there as a monument to the victory we can have over our sins. We take them, we try to bury them, and there they sit until they wreck our relationship with God, affect others, possibly cost us our lives. But if we dig them up and give them to him, according to the prophet Micah, he will cast them into the depths of the sea. And recognize that, that there was probably no sense that the depths of the sea had any real bottom. It was just, you went down forever. He would take these things that we had buried, oh, maybe a, a foot underground and thought, oh, they're, they're safe, no one will find. He will take them, cast them away, and they will go down, 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 and we will never see them again. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. If you have sinned and buried it, he still loves you. Dig it up today. If you want to come up after the hymn or during the hymn, I'll pray with you, I'll pray for you. It's time to dig up any sin in our camp and give it back to the Savior. And say, this, this is yours. 
This belongs to you. I've been holding it back, but it's not mine. It's yours. You died for this sin. I confess this sin. I repent of this sin. I turn from this sin. I don't want to see it anymore. Take it away. And if I find myself burying it yet again, dig it up yet again. Oops, I said I was going to I said I was going to close with that story about the guy with a chainsaw, but another one just came to me. Be nice to me. My dad once gave me a ratchet set because I had a car that was just falling apart. Every once in a while, the battery would get loose in its compartment and the contacts would pop off and I'd have to tighten it back down. He said, here I've got an old crummy uh, ratchet set that doesn't stay closed. You have to put tape, duct tape on it. And the duct tape had all like the carpet fuzz and stuff in it from, from the trunk of my car. And, and so it would pop open all the time. And, 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 you know, pieces were falling out all the time. And it happened in his car. And then he gave it to me. Every once in a while, I would go and visit my parents. And my dad would just say, hey, I got something for you. And he'd get a funny look at his eye. And he would hand me three or four of these little sockets for that socket wrench. And I always go, oh, thank you so much. But here's the thing. He wasn't giving me a gift. He'd already given me the whole socket set. He'd already given me the whole thing. Those already belong to me. He just happened to find them. It was over here. It was over there. These are part of this thing that I've already given you. This is what we do. This is, this is what sanctification often looks like. I've already given you the whole thing, Lord, but I got something for you. I dug it up this morning. He will take it from you. He will love you. He will welcome you like the father welcomed the prodigal son and slay the, the fatted calf even if you've been keeping it buried, even if you've been like Achan or Joshua, doing everything right, coming to church, saying the right words, all the while hiding your sin, he will take it from you. He will forgive you and he will make you new. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Achan, although we do recognize how bleak it is and we do wish that it could have gone better for him and his family. Lord, for us, let it not be some Benedict Arnold villain bad guy that that uh, we talk about in cartoonish terms but a real warning that we can and tend to as humans who contend with the flesh and the and the old first adam in us lord we can bury sin we can bury it deep we can keep on burying it there may be someone here or someone hearing my voice somewhere else right now lord who's been adding and adding and adding to the point where their their tent is one big massive mound of earth that can barely contain their buried sin, and, and they can barely breathe. Lord, I pray you'd set that person free today, that they would dig this up, they would give it to you, and know that you love them. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.